previously on Storyological. <laughs> um, what else have we done recently? <gasps> a little bit of Yuja. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we saw a little... quite a lot of Yuja, actually. <laughs> All right, go for it, yes. Yuja, who is this Yuja? Of Yuja Wang playing, playing her rinky-dink piano at the barbican. Yes, or as I, I occasion it, wrestling with a hippo. She <laughs> And uh, let's be honest, she won. <laughs> she beat that hippo oh, into yeah. submission. It reminded me of David Foster Wallace's essay about Roger Federer, which was a kind of ode to what it is to see somebody master an art or a mm. sport and be a master of the body and the fact that it... Like when you watch somebody be really amazing uh, at something, you can dream that one day you could be amazing at something in the way that they are. And of course, you probably won't ever be that amazing, but the dream is worth a lot. Right, but and yeah, also it's not it's not distracting. You can still just sink into the music and be lifted up by it. Mm. It's not like her. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Greatness. I guess, but I was looking for a, a better word. But yeah, so it's not like her greatness Skin in any way detracts from the <laughs> in any way detracts from the experience. Like sometimes, <laughs> does it ever detract from the experience? Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. I guess sometimes if I see, maybe it's more associated with if I see somebody do something that I want to do or try and do, who is clearly magnificent at it. I spent all my time thinking about what are they doing and how are they doing it and what is the technique. And whereas I played piano for about 45 minutes once when I was eight years old. So I have no desire in that direction, but I can just sink into the glorious experience that she creates. Yeah, that happens a few times for me with writing. I think that there's there's a little bit, though, that I get the same thing out of it with with everybody that I see that's great, which is I wonder what is their habit of life? Like, how do they live? Yeah, uh, it fascinates me. As if, as if somehow a habit of life is what creates greatness. Like that is what is interesting to me. I will devour interviews and articles about how artists I admire live their lives and create their work. I guess what hoping to glean some understanding of what goes into creating the magnificent things that they make. Yes, yeah. But without does, ever yeah. you but you can never really look under the hood and understand what that what that spark is that yeah. drives it or that that energy that gives them the place to start from. No no matter how much discipline and rigor or or lack of it or, you know, training till four AM or anything like that, you've you've gotta you've gotta have some spark. Yes. That's true. Like, I get it. Like, it's a, it sounds like you're constructing it like, like, why would I read all of these things in the hopes that I would achieve what they've achieved when there's no amount that I can read that will ever tell me what it is that allowed them to achieve it? Mm -hmm. It feels like, that is a bit like saying, why would I ever talk to someone? Uh, no amount that I talk to them will ever teach me how to win a million dollars. Like, oh, I thought you were going to say no amount I talk to them will ever teach me what it is to be them. Right, right. But that's, and that's why I didn't say that. Cause I feel like, like trying, like reading interviews to figure out what makes someone great. Yeah. It probably won't work because it's a really, it's almost an impossible endpoint. but like reading interviews to know something of how they live their life, because 
you know you're you're passionate and how people live their lives is a is a different way i guess i guess i i when i i am conflicted when i read them because i do a little bit of what you talked about you know i i read about how artists of all kinds live to try and understand like you say all the different ways of thinking and being and dedicating yourself to something yeah. um also non-artists just artists i'm less interested in non-artists okay yeah. i mean that could be part of it like if i'm reading non-artists for the same reason that, that i can imagine that's why if you're mostly just reading artists because you're mostly actually interested in figuring out that little tick of personality well well yeah i'm it's not mostly but it's definitely there is the specter kind of behind like i hope that one day something's going to click and and like I have got a ton of useful stuff from reading about, you know, how creative, how people think about their own creativity or how they, you know, how they run their lives. Um, a million things. But I always hope for more. I always hope to uncover that little garnet, you know, even though I know that can never be true. That's always like... The garnet of what? The garnet of truth. Oh, you mean like the the secret to how to be a successful artist? Uh, yeah. However you define success, yeah. I imagine that that's no matter where you start in an artistic endeavor, or uh, I mean, maybe no matter where you start in any endeavor, that's always the first thing you're looking for is reading about other people who have set off on the same journey, hoping that they'll be able to point you in the right direction. Yeah, because then at least if you're traveling in the right direction, you can make your own discoveries. But if you're just sailing around in the harbor in your home bay, <laughs> you know. Why wouldn't you be sailing off alone into the ocean? Well, because I think that, uh, oh, I don't know why other people don't, but I certainly just turn in circles without, without understanding. Before I started writing and drawing, and I didn't understand, I just thought those things materialized out of thin air for people. I just thought people sat down and could do them. I didn't understand that they took hard work and discipline and training, that you could learn, you can learn aspects of that work piecemeal and point off in direction. So I was just sort of still at anchor, wondering why I wasn't getting anywhere. Not wondering why I wasn't getting anywhere, but and too we, scared to go you anywhere. Were, you were do Oh, you were scared to go anywhere, but you were doing something. Well, I was reading interviews. Oh, okay. Okay. I wondered if you had written something before you started reading about writing. No, no. That was what gave me the confidence to start trying because I was like, oh, you mean I can just start with a right. sentence or a paragraph and that's okay? And I just practice this a bunch and in a few different ways. And that's, well, like, what is an idea? look? How do I, how do I know what an idea looks like? Oh, okay. This person can show me what it is to recognize an idea so these things that have been popping into my mind all through my life i suddenly realized shit that's an idea i, I could remember, write about that i remember you telling me now that you didn't have any writers around you yeah they had no community no writers no artists and a very fervent almost religious belief in scientific science and the scientific met method but not artists of the scientific method no yeah i don't know what that would be Oh, like like Feynman or Sagan, people who I feel like embraced like the the deep truth of any of artistic endeavor, which is 
to discover more about the world or themselves or to have fun in the process of uncovering something of what it means to be alive. I feel like a lot of, of scientists that have achieved renown uh, probably both have an artistic sensibility in the sense that somehow that made them famous. Mm-hmm. Like even Einstein, like he was a bit poetic. But also because the the process of science is a process of 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 invention and revision mm-hmm. um but you know with a maybe the first start of um uh encountering the world like you encounter the world you come up with a thesis for why the world works the way it does and then you revise that thesis until it seems to to fit and then other people read your work and argue and say no no that's not the way that you should talk about women in fact this other way is the right way to talk about women and then future women read those women who reacted to those <laughs> and men and they say by the way the real way is to shut up yes and then and then later yes other women would go oh in fact this guy got me much better than mm-hmm. all of these other women that i've read because my identity is not related to right and i just i i don't know because of what how, what and how I'd studied or how I had lived my life. But I had no sense of that revision and challenge being a sign of success. I always saw it as being a sign of weakness, which is not, is not a mode of being that really gets you far because then you're afraid to try stuff because what if you're wrong? And also it's very hard to let go of anything you've done or said in the past. Right, right, yeah. That ends my counselling session then. This is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick this week is Vox Clementis in Deserto by Curtis Sittenfeld. From her new collection, You Think It? I'll say it. So. Yes. Yeah, this. In fact, is. (laughs) It turns out. Could be. It turns out. This is a story about Dana and her friendship with a girl named Ray. Dana is a shy first year at Dartmouth who can't bring herself to go to parties, to speak to people, or really do much beyond study. Uh, Point in case, case in point, case in point, (laughs) a point in case I need to make it. Turns out, turns (laughs) out language doesn't work the way Emma's trying to make it work. Um, Her list of ambitions for her first year of university are, number one, once a week, if someone seems nice and approachable, Ask if they want to go out for pizza, EBAs. Okay. Number two, mm. at least say hi to, but also try to smile at people I pass. Number three, join the debate team, question mark. And like that is the the level at which Dana lives and this kind of perpetually awkward, shy existence. And then she starts, takes an English class. Um, where Ray is and Ray inserts herself into Dana's life and demonstrates how to live without these kinds of social anxieties that Dana has always lived with. And for me, like the subtitle of this story could be Other People Have Insides Too. (laughs) Yeah, which for Dana is a big old realisation. And I guess part of the reason why I love this story, or at least the first two thirds of it, so much is because that was such a giant realisation for me at about the same age. And so I felt really connected to her and and her kind of transition from this painful, shy girl who 
imagines the insides of other people. Like, she sees Ray as this super cool girl who does what she wants and who just, like, rushes through life being exotic and exciting. And then she meets Ray and she starts hanging out with her and she realises that actually she's made that up. And actually Ray is a person with her own needs and desires and is way more complex and actually kind of different to the things that Dana has imagined her into being for. And it's that it's that distinction and Dana's understanding of it or, or coming to understand it that really is totally in my jam in this story. Uh, I was going to start somewhere different, but uh, as you laid out why you love it, I might as well go straight into why I came to love it more when I understood that it was less about what I feel like you said that it was about. I don't know why I'm often surprised that, you know, of course what you say that you love about a story that I struggled with tends to be exactly the thing that I struggled with. Because, mm. of course, you're going to latch on to, like, the heart of a story and you're going to find in it something you love. And mm. probably that heart of the story is what's going to be something I struggle with. This story unnerved me because it's such a painfully clear-eyed look at someone I used to be, someone I could have been, someone who stayed fixated on my imaginings of other people. And what unnerved me about the story as I read it was as much as there's detail about Ray, as much as we learn things about Ray, there was a feeling to me that the, the story in that it was written so much in summary, so much from inside the point of view of the narrator, it reminded me a lot of Alan Bennett's Talking Heads. We talked about one of his stories in our first season, and those stories were written to be filmed, to be acted as a single person talking to camera. That was my sense of this story. There's a single person telling me the story. I'm in their point of view. And so by the end of the story, my sense is less that it's been a story about coming to realize that Ray is a real person and more coming to realize that in an Alan Bennett sense, this person is still someone who is fixated on her imaginings of people, who is still stuck in not seeing herself in the present very clearly like those in those talking head stories I felt like this is a story about what it cannot admit that it's about that's so interesting because that is like I feel like I only said half of my thought about why this is my jam like the the transition that when she understands that Ray is not her imagining of Ray that she is someone different different I, when I read this, I felt like that allowed Dana to look at herself and realize that she is not other people's imaginings of her and that she could be her own thing, whatever she chose that to be. I really felt that, that kind of transition that, that this period, this friendship with Ray and Isaac had brought, brought about in her life. Like when there's this, um, this quote, but Ray's way of not making an effort fashion-wise was, like her handwriting, far cooler than mine. Mine stemmed more than confusion than indifference and resulted in a wardrobe of unironic, colourful sweaters and bleached jeans that were loose but tapered. And that is all about Ray is this person I have imagined and, and I see myself only as I fear other people see me. 
But then later on, she says there was more and more evidence, starting with the discovery that she was dating someone younger, then reinforced by Sally's comments outside the dining hall, that Ad invented my idea of Ray. That really, the only person who perceived Ray as cool at all was me. And I thought a lot when I was reading this about Cat Person and how those two people in that story fail to understand and imagine, you know, imagine the other people as real people in in the good way, in the way that you should imagine that they have depth. And I, you know, I can totally see Dana flips in and out of it, but I feel like the last third of this story takes a jump from her recounting what happens at university into her kind of adult life where she meets up again with Isaac and then they have a family together. And for me, it was like this very jarring jump in the narrative, but I kind of got why she wanted to go there like she wanted this long distance perspective to be able to demonstrate of how pivotal her experience of that friendship had been mm. right and see that's the thing the the pivot there into the future to me is not a demonstration of perspective but a running away from the moment when the past got scariest so that jarring Ooh, interesting pivot happens right at the moment where she's betrayed ray where we've understood and she's acted in a way that shows she did not care about Ray at all. Ray was not her friend. Yeah. She was just a model for how to be human in mm. a way that she felt she could not be. And the scene that we run away from, they've gone to meet Ray's boyfriend, Noah, another person that our narrator, of course, has imagined to be not just handsome, but somehow something. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Um, turns out he's not that great, and he decided not to have sex with Ray because Ray had her period and the narrator Dana past Dana teenage Dana college Dana tells Noah well I'm not on my period right uh, let's do it right and so they do it and right after that is where it jumps and says after college I was a research assistant in a lab in Boston for yeah. two years before attending medical school at Johns Hopkins I matched to my first choice residency, which was at the University of Iowa. And I was a year into it when I received a phone call from Isaac. And then we learned Isaac, who was also a friend of both of theirs, a friend of Ray, a friend of Dana, someone that young Dana intuitively knew was gay, but of course was completely wrong because all of her intuitions were broken <laughs> because failed. she did not know <laughs> how to interact with people as, you know, I didn't, as many sensitive, introspective, scared people are. See, that is what made me latch on to a reading that more in an Alan Bennett sense, this is a tragic story of someone who cannot face, or a tragic story of someone who has written a story that cannot admit that it's about what it's about. That if it was about Ray, if it was about her relationship with Ray, if it was about coming to see Ray as a human, she would have to reckon with what she did to with Ray, betrayal, how yeah. she betrayed Ray, mm -hmm. and how she never... Um, and, and how she seems to still be guilty about it. Because as as much as the story begins with Ray by saying, I met Ray, there's a really interesting switch at the end where she says that she's never heard from Ray, but she likes to imagine what Ray is doing right now. And there's a few sentences that describes her imaginings of Ray. Once I got out of thinking that it was about her seeing Ray as a person, but was more about this betrayal and inability to deal mm -hmm. with it, that gave me a different way into the story. Let me see that in a way... It's not just that she's imagining Ray there at the end. She's imagining Ray being asked about Dana, being mm. asked about Isaac. And Ray can't remember either of them. And so 
still like what you were saying about how when she met Ray, she was kind of lost in her fears of how other people saw her. Mm-hmm. I saw that turn at the end as kind of, in effect, she's imagining other people not remembering the reality of her, which still erases the reality of other people, of course. And so it's like in imagining she is unworthy of consideration in that moment. She still makes everything about her. Yeah, I look, I totally see that reading. And I think... I think it is, uh, you know, adds, it adds a lot. Well, I think when I read those lines, I was imagining that, that that thought no longer held power over her. That was what I read into it. Like the fact that her imagination, her imagining of Ray forgetting her was no, was not crushing in the way that maybe the people who she go tries to go party with in the beginning was you know, her failure to perform in the way that she was expected to in that situation was crushing. But in the end, it was not crushing. It was just like, yeah, okay, well, it doesn't, it no longer has power over me what other people think. Yeah, I would but totally I both of those things are agree totally with that reading of the story, except that she's written a story <laughs> about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I think what you say about running away from that scene and that betrayal is really interesting because that was the moment at which I was like, wait, wait, what? I, I loved everything up until here. But now I feel very, very thrown out of this narrative and kind of like, you know, I'm super happy that you've ended up with Isaac. That's very sweet. But what about this situation? Why aren't you engaging with it? And I think you've really like put a pin in uh what was so frustrating about it or, and you know possibly what it was aiming at that's a cool way to think about it because it i think is really important that when you're loving a story and then it seems to do something crazy that that makes it hard for you to love it it means that it's very possible that what you were imagining the story to be about is not what the story wanted to be about and you know and then you have to do that thing where you reckon with your own thoughts and also what the story is tr- maybe trying to do to see if you come and, back but as new- we as we know from our earlier discussion i'm not good at revising my opinion <laughs> of stuff <laughs> it's very well, hard for me on my own to go to take a pause and yeah. be like hey you know what i think my interpretation of that needs some depth or needs some more interest so that's part of the reason why i love these conversations i i love them as well because it's i really love doing that on my own in conversation and having more opportunities more diverse stories to read stories that might not come into my and might not come willfully into my life it's fun I want to put myself in situations where I have to encounter things I would not necessarily choose to encounter and then think about them like this story confused me and unnerved me it made me really mad there were moments that I really loved uh, the sparks of beauty there was a bit where she talked about being that college kid in a town trying to figure out what to do with her time and her thinking the one thing I never thought about losing from that time was just Mm. this emptiness just this need to fill up time where did that go yeah that can I read that quote yeah I had no idea of course that of all the feelings of my youth that would pass it was this one of an abundance of time so great as to routinely be unfillable that would vanish with the least ceremony oh my god that line I love it yeah yeah and there was also I think uh, a realization that you mentioned, a realization that other people around her were also lonely and confused and desperate and thought they weren't good enough. Um, And the one thing that I 
that, that made me also question what the story was about was that when I finished it, I was, I was left thinking of the interview I did with Alyssa. I, and in that interview, she talked about that thing that all children realize or that they should realize about their parents, which is not only that they're people, but that by being people, it means they're not symbols or paragons of anything. Um, and so when I finished the story, a part of me reading it as a story about realizing Ray was a real person really hungered, really thought why after the betrayal, after the jump to the future, when it comes back at the very end, back to the scene a little bit, she talks about Ray coming to pick her up. She talks about how they never talked about it. I thought, oh, why isn't there, why isn't there a scene just right there, a seemingly inconsequential scene in the car where we see them interact and Ray is a real person and there's a moment where Dana could have connected with her but doesn't because, of course, she's ashamed about betraying. And I was like, why isn't that there? And I was like, oh, maybe because it's not supposed to be there. Maybe because she's not like Alyssa. She hasn't learned to see people as people. She still sees them in some way through her own fears that you were talking about, of her own imagined inadequacies. And that and still being kind of wrapped up maybe in her own imagined inadequacies or whatever kind of is still shielding her from the real, what I'm imagining to be her real failures, her real inadequacies, what I'm imagining to be the story is about, means that she's still seeing Ray, she's still seeing as other people as these inexplicable answers to some unfaced question inside of her. Mm. I think that in describing that, I have just realized that uh, you and Alyssa have discussed what I am now going to hold up to be in a a new name for a standard in fiction for characters is do they pass the Alyssa test is this character imagined as a as a fully human being and can they see other people as real human beings and not just symbols of whoever they are my pick for this week is the empty the empty the empty and you just know with a title like that that it's going to be all fun and games all the way well you know you know me i don't care what it's about it could be just 100% joy for me, no matter what. I told it's, somebody it's recently, I read Ulysses, and I was like, that thing was a ball of laughs. I love it. Total joy. Also, infinite jest. Total joy. And the person across from me looked at me like, well, I mean, that's not what I think of first when I think of Ulysses. <laughs> um, like, that's fine. Uh, right. So, dramatic buildup by Jenny Zong, which I read in her collection, Sour Heart which is a pretty amazing collection of stories that I, I dearly love. And I read it at the end of last year, and I just couldn't decide what story to talk about. Then Carmen came to visit us, and I asked Carmen, which story should I talk about? And she opened it, and she's like, oh, this one, this one. I can't think of it. What's the name? And I think I, I may have asked, do you mean The Empty? And she was like, yeah, yeah, The Empty, The Empty, The Empty. You should talk about that. This story is great. So that's why we're talking about it. You can read it online. We'll put a link to the show notes as we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the story, The Empty, The Empty, The Empty, which as Emma points out, is perhaps not about discovering joy in life. <laughs> it's discovering the, the burning fire of, of light and love that lives inside us all. While it may not be about that, it is about being alive. And it is so alive that it makes me feel more alive. And that is what I experience as joy is a deeper connection with what it is to be something. And the story is about a girl named Lucy. She's in fourth grade, which for non-US people is around 10 or 11 years old. 
I don't know what it would be in British. What do you call somebody who's 10 or 11? Small. Uh, and it's about her. It's about her relationship with her mom. It's a bit complicated, a bit guilty, 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 a bit occasionally Lucy will think to herself, I'm sorry, 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 sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry about that. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, and also uh, Lucy's friends, including Francine, who knows everything, including the word fuck and also how to fuck. Uh, and Lucy's not real cousin, but who she's supposed to call cousin Frangie, who her mom takes in, because her mom is always taking in, uh, as Lucy calls them, randos. <laughs> Their house is just full of randos that her mom pulls in, and who her mom says that Lucy should treat as family because they're not as well off as her. Uh, and there's also Lucy's boyfriend, who, rumor has it, has begun to have wet dreams. His name is Jason. The story revolves around her kind of fascination with Francine and what she knows, her hatred of Frangie, and how Frangie seems to represent all the things that Lucy is most afraid that she is as a person, which is needy, alone, desperate, somebody that nobody wants to be around. And her not all that interest in Jason, except the fact that it seems cool to have a boyfriend, especially because Lucy, as she describes herself, is the most beautiful girl ever to exist in fourth grade. She has the straightest, best hair in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's delivered to us by Ginny in a style that, because we had just seen Yuja Wang, I just thought this is what it looks like when you read prose that reads like Yuja Wang playing piano. This is virtuosic. It is just That's a the kinetic... word I was looking for earlier, virtuoso. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. This is a virtuoso performance. It is a, is a, it is a facility with language such that it can skip about between cosmic, hyperbolic, intimate, breathless, uh, whatever she needs it to be. Right. She's, she's taken... She's taken the way George Saunders kind of broke narrative style and made it relevant for, like, I don't want to say a new generation, that sounds really wanky, but for me, the only other writer I've read that remotely, uh, remotely hits this kind of immediacy to the, to the narrator and the energy of it is George Saunders. And yet she is also very distinct from his style. She she performs the the prose in such a way that, well, it's not like she's wrestling with a hippo and winning, but she is wrestling with some very deep and specific pain on behalf of the kids that she is writing about. And you feel it like she is personally interviewing them, taking down their quotes, and then also understanding exactly what kind of sits underneath them. The pain of, of Lucy, desperate for her mother's attention, but never getting anything more than a telling off. Whereas her mother lavishes all this attention on these other, on the randos that she invites to stay, which, which means that she ends up resenting Frangie for her very visible visible in her life kind of pain and scarring because that is what elicits her mother's sympathy her empathy her support her declaration that Frangie should be loved and supported whereas Lucy is like 
uh, hello, what about your real daughter? You know, and she she carries all of that pain inside her, but because it's not visible, she doesn't get the same kind of response from her mum. And it made me think about when I was a kid, let's say, I don't know, something between five and ten years old, whenever I was feeling overwhelmed by sadness or anger, you know, and I was upset or crying about about something, I would find it impossible to articulate, to, to articulate in a way that adults would find visible in the way of Frangie's pain. Um, and so I would say I would miss my dad because my dad had died. And that was a very explicit, simple, understandable thing that I knew would always elicit the right kind of sympathy, or at least something approximating sympathy from adults. And even if that wasn't what I was thinking about or that wasn't what the problem was at the time, I knew it was a legitimate thing in the eyes of the adults around me. Everyone feels sorry for a six-year-old who doesn't have a dad. Recently, I told you that one of my favorite things about John Hughes is that though he made some not great films, he made a lot of great films. And Mm. the greatness of his films came from him carrying more about more of the characters in his films than other films of that type often bothered to care about. And when I read this story, I thought about what I'm in love with here is that however sometimes comically, however painfully deep we are in Lucy's point of view, however dazzled we are at times by the sentences of this searing consciousness, Ginny manages to bring Jason and Francine and Frangie and Lucy's mom, and also Lucy's dad, who isn't even in the story. <laughs> he's, not, he's never there. Uh, it brings them all just to electric life. They they just snap. Um, in a in 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 that way that Mark Twain talked about words. Mark Twain said that the difference between a right word and the wrong word is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. Um, <laughs> like. Whatever Ginny's doing, whatever that spark is, these these characters live and breathe. There is that scene near the end of the story where, oh, God bless him, Francine has tied Frangie to the bed because she wants Jason to have sex with Frangie because Francine has this idea that Jason needs to practice having sex before he can have good sex with, with Lucy. Lucy. Yeah. Uh, and Lucy is going along with this because she doesn't know what the fuck she's doing because she's 10 years old. <laughs> <laughs> she's just like, uh, uh Right. Uh-huh. Uh, and through the way Jenny arranges the scene and through the, the dialogue in that scene, you get a sense of what each of them kind of want or are afraid of. They have little lines that, that they say that let you know that they are, are real people who may have their own story that makes them either really excited about this or not so sure about this. Uh, And so the scene is charged with a kind of static because there's this friction. All of these characters bring this friction into the story that are rubbing against each other so that you, you, you get not just, you know, this thing that I rant about, about not seeing people as people is a kind of moral rant at times. But to me, there's just a fundamental craft thing too. That scene is more interesting because all of those people are alive, and so there's right. drama. Right, we know all the different ways in which they're all uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, but we don't know what they're going to do mm-hmm. because of that discomfort. And so there's there's so much drama in the scene. Yeah. Lucy is such a 
deliciously complex character. She lives in this space between delusion, desire and fear where you're never really sure of what she's saying is a truth, a partial truth or something she's totally imagined. And and you kind of get that sense early on and then but it wasn't until she talks about her experience at the school dance where where she dressed up as a mummy, uh, wrapped herself in bandages, and then <laughs> Chris is pointing out that he's highlighted this section as well. Yeah, it's important, right? Because because she tells the story of how she went to the school dance and was humiliated because she these bandages that she dressed up in fell off and exposed her little nubby breasts to the whole school. Shall I read the sentence? Yeah. Okay. As usual, I was dancing on turbocharge. When all the gauze unraveled and suddenly I was standing there in my underwear and my little nubby breasts and everyone was staring open-mouthed at me. Yeah, and then she goes and talks to one of her school friends about it and her school friend is like, what, you weren't even there? And so it throws all of her stories and all of her understanding about what is happening into doubt. And I love that. Like, Jenny feels no need to clarify any of this stuff about what is happening and who is doing it and why it's happening beyond what Lucy's lived experience is of it and the way that she creates the narration of her life in her head to cope with the the life that she's living. One of my favorite bits of language is right in that scene, in between the bit where she describes being humiliated and the bit where she talks to her friend that says she wasn't there. Lucy says this after everyone was staring at her. She says... Just kidding. They only happened in my dreams the night before the dance, and in real life, the gauze flapped around my arms and legs gloriously. The lights in the gymnasium followed me everywhere I went, and surely I was the shining, burning asteroid, comet, sun, galaxy, universe, rings of Saturn, ninth wonder of the world, never gonna burn out star of the dance. That whole sequence where it goes from her describing being humiliated to then to that fervent wonder of what a burning bright center of the universe she is, then to that moment where, yeah, the friend says... You weren't even there. Mm-hmm. That to me encapsulates like so much of the power of the language of this story to be both cosmic, to be both expansive and to be claustrophobic in the sense that you're crushed under a sense of humiliation and a desire to be so great that everyone sees you and revelatory. And that that last bit isn't really a language thing where her friend says you weren't there. But it is a way of bringing in the dialogue of other humans to, to question that narrator. Then there's another bit that I'm going to start reading that encapsulates some of just the, the pure ecstasy of the prose. And I don't just mean that in the sense of my enjoyment, but the sense that you kind of get the feeling that once Lucy gets on, gets on going, <laughs> once Lucy gets ahead of steam, uh, she just doesn't want to stop. Like, she herself is kind of addicted to this run-on. I'll, I'll see how far I get before you or I decide. We probably should take a break. That was the way fourth grade went. I tried to soar through the air like an eagle, tried to cut through the wide expanse of sky to reach some realm of infinite possibility, infinite compassion and understanding. But it was impossible. I kept crashing into things and receiving head injuries. My mother made me feel clumsy when I thought I was graceful. She made me think my faults were incorrigible. 
Her sudden bouts of impatience made me feel small and slow as a turtle, like the time I dreamed I was a giant who poked out the windows of skyscrapers with my fingers, and then suddenly Elmer Fudd showed up and shot me in the knee, and I started shrinking until I was no bigger than a turtle the size of a thimble, and then I was a turtle the size of a pebble, and then I was a turtle the size of a period. Uh, there is a feeling, and you know, I'm stuck in Yuja Wang world, so I'm going to go with it. There is a feeling that at times her playing is going to get out of control, that the atonality, the rush, is going to escape. But it doesn't. Have you ever seen any Irish dancing? Uh, do you mean river dance? That That is Irish dancing, okay. yeah. Like Irish folk dancing. I was going to check because it's very possible that has been exported to the world. Irish folk dancing... Irish dancing has this very specific look, which if you've seen Riverdance and Lord of the Dance and all the other Michael Flatley things, I forgot that that existed, but it's it has been well exported. And the style of Irish dancing is that from the waist up, you are rigid. Your arms are rigid. Your face is composed and relaxed. Your back is straight. But from the waist down, your legs are like rubber bands and they are doing crazy maneuvers and and things that don't look like they should be possible when they're attached to the static upper half of your body and it, it that watching that is a little like reading the story you know the mixture of revelatory and claustrophobic that you were talking about it's to me that is like the embodiment of what it's like to experience this that she performs tricks with her prose and her characters that you think shouldn't be possible for the the kind of static painful bullied life that that she's experiencing and I have such huge admiration for it I want to go back to something you said about how you're not really sure if Lucy is honest with you or herself like you don't know if what she sees is real because there's there's a little turn right at the end where Lucy basically says, okay, I'm ready. The thunderstorm is coming. I'm, I'm going to detach from myself. I'm going to look down. And this time, I'm not going to look away. I'm going to see what's really down there. Mm. And then, you know, Ginny, like, gets up from the piano and leaves. <laughs> and you're like, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. So right at the end, she, she, like, puts up a giant kind of flashing arrow that points to what you're talking about, about how Lucy hasn't really seen herself mm -hmm. she hasn't learned how to see herself yet um which made me think about how all of the noise of the story all of the cosmic breathless hyperbolic uh, hyperbolic rush of the story kind of functions in a way of preventing lucy from being still enough to see what's going on for yeah. her being the calm center of her own pain. It reminds me of one of my most beloved images in the history of Western art, which is those episodes of Looney Tunes where a character runs off a cliff and what they decide to do is to just keep running and not look down. And when they do that, they're fine. Unfortunately, eventually, they always have to look down Why and then do they, they look fall. Down? Hmm? Why do they look down? That was always my question. Right? Why must they look down? What is it that compels us to do that when we're on uncertain ground and i think that's 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 the magic that's why it's like uh for some of us one of the enduring images of, of our civilization yeah. 
it makes sense. It kind of makes sense to you as a kid, and yet it doesn't make sense. You think, why do they look down? Why don't they just keep running and never look down? They'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, Some of us live our whole lives that way. We do, yeah. And as long as there's another, as long as you're running towards another plot of land where there are other humans, you'll be okay. Mm. Um, you might run off into nowhere, though. Like when I describe it, like Jenny finishes the story and she just gets up from the piano. I, of course, am being a little bit facetious, except that I'm also being deadly serious. The way the story feels, the way that she digs into a character, both where we feel really intimate with the character and also aware that the character isn't intimate with themselves. There's so much a rush of noise that that moment is the moment where the character looks down and we know they're about to fall. And there, and there's the, the fact that she ends the story right there means that, that Jenny has frozen Lucy like in that cartoon space mm-hmm. floating in midair. And so all of the kinetic energy of the story now switches instantaneously to a potential energy. And that's what you carry with you. Thanks for listening, readers. We haven't managed to talk about all the stories in the world this week, uh, nor even all of the uh, bullet points, <laughs> not even all of the things about these two uh, incredible stories. Yeah, so if you have some things to say to us about these stories or some things to say to us about the stories that we should be talking about, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Storyological. Which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. You can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter. He is at Kuvols. You can find and like us on Facebook if you have not deleted that thing yet at facebook.com slash storylogical. And if you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating on your uh, podcast deliverer of choice because that helps other people find us. And we love it when that happens. And if you are... I usually list a whole bunch of things that might be reasons why you're opposed to Apple or podcasts in general. I won't say that. I'll just say this long preamble about how I often say that. Uh, If you'd rather not leave a review or you've already left a review or you're just interested in another way to support us, we have started a Patreon this year. Uh, And if you go there and you sign up and you donate one or two or three or a thousand dollars a month, please don't donate a thousand dollars a month. That would be too much pressure. Uh, You'll get access to our Patreon only feed where we talk about the stories we're going to talk about or the stories we're loving. If you support us at $3 a month, then you'll get access to a monthly newsletter I send out where I review not everything, but, you know, I try. And for gifts, uh, links to past episodes, interviews that we've done, like Alyssa's interview last week, which I have to say I absolutely loved. I saw Chris and Alyssa had an awesome conversation um, you can find us at our home on the web. Storylogical.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. I, I, I wrapped it up. <laughs> I, I could see I could see the tension building, so I was like, yeah, let's get to the end. <laughs> see, what do we do? We hit stop.